Good morning, everybody. My name's Tom, if we haven't had a chance to meet. And I'm glad that you're here. And if we haven't had a chance to meet, I hope we do get a chance to meet. Some cool things were happening here as we were worshiping. Some people got some healings going on, including somebody's vision. That's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> you got to give God some glory when that stuff happens, you guys. You just can't let it slip by. Well, I have a few other things that I've been pondering this week. I thought I was done last week, but once it started, I just started pondering these deep mysteries of life again, and I, I, I just got caught up in a few more, and i got to share them with you, all right? See if these things have ever crossed your mind. Why isn't there a mouse-flavored cat food? All right. Here's a deep, deep, deep one. Why do fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing? <laughs> Ain't right. Why is the person who invests all your money called a broker? <laughs> Should have seen that one coming. No wonder. Why are there interstate highways in Hawaii? I mean, you like that one. <laughs> Why doesn't the word phonetic start with F? Gotcha. Were you hooked on pahonics, too? <laughs> Why did kamikaze pilots wear helmets? That ain't right. Why are cigarettes sold at gas stations? Oh, there we go. Okay. Shouldn't there be a shorter word for monosyllabic? Why do people ask, can I ask you a question? Too late. And I know last week, the deep mystery of life that I left for last was, why did Julia Roberts and Mary Lyle love it? But this week, it's this. If, if pro is the opposite of con, then what is the opposite of Congress? See Sue if you didn't get it. She'll... Uh, could be a way homer. Oh, I get that. But the big question is the same as last week with Ecclesiastes. Is that is why is Song of Solomon in the Bible? Why is the book, the Song of Solomon, in the Bible? I mean, come on. Have you read that thing? Anybody? It's a little embarrassing in spots, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Why is it even in there? Here we are in stop number 19 on our Through the Bible series. And we're up to this book called The Song of Solomon. And uh, if you haven't been in there, you've got to know that it is definitely like a PG-13 book. Because they talk about stuff in there that's pretty hot. They talk about stuff in there that I don't think I could actually read in front of you in church without, without blushing. So... Uh, I just want you to know that. And the question comes up, then why is, 
Why is it in the Bible? Well, let's do what we always do with these books. Let's start by looking at the context of it. And to start with, the context of Song of Solomon was traditionally thought to, be, to have been written by Solomon. That's why it's Song of Solomon. Uh, that's a traditional assignment of authorship. Even though there's no internal evidence in the book that says Solomon's name, we're always happy when we saw that like in Ecclesiastes and when we see Proverbs and stuff where his name is actually in there. We don't have that in the Song of Solomon. So the, the authorship is under some realistic dispute. And so some of you in your Bibles, it might not even say Song of Solomon. It says what? Song of Songs, right. Because the authorship is in such, you know, such dispute. But this is one of those cases where at the end of the day it doesn't matter. In many cases when we read the Bible, the context of who wrote it is a pretty big piece of the understanding puzzle. In this case, it's, it's a standalone kind of a thing that it doesn't really matter so much. Now, I, I think it was written by Solomon because if you look at the nature of the material and the fact that Solomon had 700 concubines and 300 wives, I think he knew this subject matter. That's just a very non-scholarly guess there, okay? So first of all, it was written by Solomon. The book, Song of Solomon, is a treatise on physical intimacy. It's what it's about. It's a book about intimacy between a man and a woman. There are actually three voices in the Song of Solomon. There's the lover, there's the beloved, and then there are the friends who occasionally speak out kind of over their relationship for this really dynamic, steamy kind of thing that happens because it is unapologetically graphic in how the book, as they behold one another, talk about what they appreciate about each other. Leaving it there, okay? It's unapologetically graphic. And I I don't know, it just kind of sets me back a little bit. I was thinking about that. Why? Because God wants us to consider these things. So why am I sort of reserved? Why was I nervous about getting to this point in the series? Why? And I think it's because we live in a post-Puritan age. That we are Christians, we are believers, readers of the Bible, who live after Puritanism had its impact on the world, on the church, and especially in America, more so than Europe or other parts of the world. Puritanism had its impact on the church. And so we're, we're you know, there, there are shades of that in us as believers. Even though our culture, you know, as a society, we've thrown all that out the window, right, with regard to sexuality and stuff. It's like, whatever, and it's all out there and anything goes. But there's still something inside of us that, that holds to something, isn't there? And some of that is scripture, and some of that, I think, is leftover influence from, uh, from the Puritans, really, in our society. Because if you think about when this, when this would have been written, you know, 700, 800, 900 B.C., if you would you think about how much differently different the world was, so how much differently people would have thought about this topic of sexuality. And partly because, catch this, is that because in those days they did not have the luxury of the the luxury of privacy that we have in these days. You know what I'm saying? And so it was more of an open subject because it was open. 
if you know what I mean. I mean, it was something that was talked about in a different way than we talk about it today, I think. But I think uh, that as a treatise on, on physical intimacy, it really celebrates, it celebrates the gift of intimacy between a man and a woman in marriage. It's really a celebration of that as a man and a husband and wife come together in this way. But also I think it's, and for me the biggest part of the context of this is that it is an allegory for the intensity of our relationship with God is what the book is, is really, how it really feeds us now. It's an allegory for the intensity of our relationship with God. Um, and by that, in case you've forgotten or may, what an allegory is, an, an allegory is something that it stands alone in itself, but it's also a symbolic representation of something else. And so, so, you know, Song of Solomon has power and value in itself on the subject matter, but it also stands as an allegory. It also represents, at that time, the relationship between God and Israel. And so it, it's, it's a little different than a parable. You know, when Jesus spoke the parables, he said, you know, the kingdom of God is like someone who goes out to scatter seed or something. And then he went on in the parable. Well, in a parable, it's meant not to be a true story in itself. It's a story to illustrate the powerful truths of God. But in an allegory, it can be something that stands alone by itself, but also represents something about God. Was that more than you wanted? Okay, seven of you said, no, that's cool. Okay. The rest of you can check back in now. The reason that I think that it was an allegory... Uh, there's an allegorical nature to this, is because the ancient Israelites would actually read the Song of Solomon on the Sabbath of the Passover every year. They would actually just read it on the Sabbath. So, you know, Passover is the big festival of the Israelites every year, and there was always a Sabbath involved, a Saturday, when they would come together and they would uh, you know, have their observances and their celebrations of God as his people Israel. And part of what they did was actually to read the Song of Solomon. And so in reading that, they were reading it as an allegorical account of God's desire to have a relationship with Israel. And it's a real loving kind of relationship, isn't it? That's kind of an eye-opener when you think about it. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament, I kind of get into this mode where, like, the Israelites are always messing up and God's always angry. I mean, I mean, there's a way you can do that, right? And it's not always true, of course. But it's a pretty dominant theme in the Old Testament, yes or no, that they're, they're going astray and God's saying, and then they come back and so there's got this. It's more than this. this. This Song of Solomon is a very different, healthy relationship Whereas, you know, a lot of the Old Testament seems to be devoted to talking about this strained relationship, right? So I think it's kind of an eye-opener to think about that this is the heart of God for Israel, is to have this intense relationship of the God who loves his people. And so that's, that's really something I think is helpful to think of when you think about the context of this. But as... As an allegory, I underlined the word, the intensity of our relationship with God. Because if you think about it just purely from, you know, the content and what it talks about in the physical intimacy between a man and a woman, 
I don't think that's meant to be like a description of the nature of the relationship that the church has with God, but a talk about the intensity. I mean, there's, there's little we can, we can come up with that more fully describes the intensity and the passion than the relationship between a man and a woman. And so I, I think that's worth noting because I think 10 or 15 years ago, as we were, you know, Vineyard was kind of cutting-edge music, and now there's just tons of it out. It's wonderful. And Vineyard and Vineyard-like stuff, you know, that 10 or 15, maybe even 20 years ago, I think we may have been pushing this allegory a little too far. You know what I'm talking about, Pat? Yeah, yeah, pushing it a little bit too far. You're even coming up with songs, yeah. And where, where you know, there was so much sort of in love with you, God, language, that we, we, I think we actually lost a lot of men from the worship truck during that time. Because there are some of us who can say, you know, that kind of thing to God and, and it's fine. But I think a lot, of, a lot of men who when we start singing songs, oh, you're so beautiful, God, and I'm so in love with you, that it's kind of like it doesn't really work for us, does it? There's something that kicks in and it's kind of like, I... That's not exactly what I'm thinking and feeling here when I think about God. And we guys, you know, we were all for, let's sing the songs about going and out and marching and Jesus and stuff and praise you, you're amazing and stuff like that. But then when it started dialing down and talking about, I'm so in love with you, that was really hard for us to say. That was hard for us to say. You know, Matt Redman was one of the great, is one of the great worship songwriters and uh, there, you can YouTube this. It's a great, it's a three-minute video. I showed it in the Iron Man conference. Some of you guys will remember this. But Matt Redman is being interviewed, and he wrote a lot of those songs, you know. And so he's British, and the interviewer is British, and so they have these really neat accents. I know. And so they're talking to each other, and the one guy says to Matt, he says, you know, um, he says, I'm wondering if with some of the songs you've written, he says, if blokes find it hard to sing them. Blokes, don't you love that? <laughs> and, and Matt says, yeah, I, th- I think it might be true. I think they have a point. And he said, especially, I love this part, for the blokey blokes. <laughs> so that would be like the manly men, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, he said, he said, I get that. He said, I see how the blokey blokes might have trouble singing some of these songs. And then Matt Redman said, you know, there are songs that I, uh, in retrospect, I think I wish I would have written differently. And there's a song that he wrote, and I can't dial up which one it was, but one of the, the last line is, Jesus, I am so in love with you. And it's a great song. But he says in retrospect, he thinks it would have been better had he written it, Jesus, I am so in awe of you. Because, you know, it more characterizes the kind of relationship and affection that we have for God as our awesome God, instead of in love. And, and, you know, this Song of Solomon is about being in love. And so it talks about the intensity, but not necessarily characterizes the nature of the relationship. Does that make sense, that, that small distinction there? I, I think of it this way, that, you know... I, a father says to his son, to his daughter, I love you. A son or a daughter says to his father, says to their father, I love you. But we never say, Dad, I'm so in love with you. 
right? And a dad doesn't say, hey, kids, I'm so in love with you. Because that's a different kind of a phrase with a very specific kind of application, right? Right? And so, you know, so we guys, when we were getting up to that, it was like, Jesus, I I am so in love with you. We didn't want God to be like our boyfriend. We were like, how does this play, right? We want to express with passion our worship, but there was, a, there was something subtle that happened there. And, and you know, I, I told my dad I loved him, and he told me that he loved me, especially later in his life. He was a pretty tough guy. But he, you know, later in his life, actually the last thing that we said to each other was that we loved each other. I said, Dad, I love you. We'd pray together on the phone. I said, Dad, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And we hung up. And four hours later, he died. That's good. That's a good finish. Man, that's a good finish. But we said we love each other. And so there was an intensity there, but I just want to make that distinction. So why is Song of Solomon in the Bible? I think two reasons. First of all, because physical intimacy is important. It's an important subject. Physical intimacy between a man and a woman are important. And it's important. And, and it's something that, that is meant to be important in God's way. God has established a way for a man and a woman to experience this intimacy. And it is only blessed when it is in the context of how he has established it. One of the terrible things that has happened in our society is that we have been tricked into trading in physical intimacy for sexual pleasure. Physical intimacy can include sexual pleasure. This is God's idea. But sexual pleasure doesn't require physical intimacy to occur, right? I think I'll probably stop there. (laughs) But that physical intimacy is important to God. It's important to God. And the second reason that I think it's in the Bible is because it is this allegory uh, for how close God wants us to live with him. How passionate, you know, non-sensually, but how... I should say sexually, because there is a real sensual. It's an experience of the senses to know God. That's why I believe it's in the Bible. Okay, well, now each week I usually look for a hot spot, but this week I'm looking for a cool spot in the book (laughs) of Song of Solomon. I'm looking for some safe landing zone that isn't too hot to land. It was tough, I'll tell you. I kept flying over it again and again, and I go, what about the, oh, pull up, pull up, land there. And anyway... I finally landed on chapter 6, verse 3a, the first part of it. And I don't even want you to read the second part of it, because if you read the rest of the book of Song of Solomon, you'll know what that refers to. So now you're all going to look at it, I know. But there's this incredible statement where it says, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And this is a characteristic of a healthy marriage, that we belong to one another. I am my beloved. I belong to him. She belongs to me, vice versa. We belong to each other. 
I'm my beloved's, and he is mine. And there is a sense in which this is an important concept for us to embrace in our lives as believers today, that we belong to God, and that, catch this, by his, in his sovereignty, by his permission, he belongs to us. There is a sense of mutual possession. Let me see if I can explain that a little better. The Bible is clear that we belong to God. For example, in Psalm 100, verse 3, the Bible says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We're His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. So there's incredible, incredible revelation of the Bible that says, you know, God considers us to be His possession." And you say, well, that was Old Testament. That was before Christ. Wasn't he talking about Israel? Absolutely he was talking about Israel. But what's happened since then is that Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He's shed his blood, a blood that speaks a new covenant to us, so that we, by his grace, become, become the possession of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but you are, are a chosen people. You've been picked. He's talking to believers. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation. Catch that? A people belonging to God. We belong to God. We are His possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Now when you read that last part, answer this question. What is the purpose of your salvation? Why did God choose you and save you? For what purpose? To praise Him. To praise Him. To praise Him. To praise Him. To reach down into the middle of who we are and give Him our praise. That's why we were born again. That's what we're doing here. That's why worship and our musical worship as an expression is such a high value for us. It's not produced. It's not choreographed. It's done well. It's set up, and then we see what the Lord wants to do once we start doing it. But it's opportunity for us to pull up to the table of God and eat from His hand and to tell Him how much we love Him. That's why we're saved. But look at that. It says, but you are a chosen people. Focus on the word you for a minute. That's a representation of the church. When Peter says, but you are a chosen people, people belonging to God. He's talking about the church. I mean, you, as a pronoun, can either be singular or plural. You can say, you, Don. There, see? It was... Or I can say, you. It, we've been over this ground. It's y'all versus all y'all, right? And yuns. And so, in this case, it is definitely a plural. So Peter is saying, but you, the church, you are chosen. You belong to God. And you may say, but I thought Israel was the chosen people of God. Buckle up. They are. They still are. Don't miss that. Anybody been to Romans yet? The book of Romans? There's still a remnant. There's still a remnant. Is everybody who's born into a Jewish family saved? Of course not. Is everybody born into a Christian family saved? Not at all. 
But God always has a remnant, doesn't He? God always has a remnant. And so, well then how are we the chosen people? Well, because the Bible says that we've been adopted in to the family. We've been adopted, we've been grafted in, it says, under the tree of Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church is grafted in. And so we become the chosen people. Chosen by heritage of faith from Abraham? Not directly, but definitely because who was the seed of Abraham but Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, who said, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. He said, whoever, that, that, that for, what's John 1.12? I got the reference that to all who believed in him, he gave the right to become the children of God through the blood of Christ. And so we're adopted in. So we are as much chosen as the Israelites. Because he chose us, the church, to be adopted in. We are people belonging to God. There's a verse or a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8. It says, For you, church, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Jesus didn't come to enslave us to the law and our obvious inability to keep it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear. You know, as unsaved Gentiles, that was really our only option in our response to God, wasn't it? When we became aware of God and aware of our sin, if not for Christ, our only option would have been fear. Being terrified. The Bible says it is appointed unto every man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Without Christ, that's a terrifying truth. I got nothing to bring. But we didn't receive that spirit to fall into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. We are the sons and daughters of the living God. By whom we cry, it says, Abba, Father. Abba, this phrase of endearment, this dad. Not, oh, most holy, infinite Jehovah God, we beseech thee. That's fear. But we're invited to call him dad. By his initiative. And it says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Mike, you have that spirit in you, and it testifies, doesn't it? There's some days, you and I, we feel more like good sons of God than others. <laughs> but the spirit always testifies inside of our spirit that whether it's a good day or not a good day, we are sons of the living God through the blood of Jesus Christ, what he did for us. That doesn't change. So we belong to God. But in what way does God belong to us? This is a little bit tricky, but we've got to get hold of it. It's so important. Because there's a, there's a sense of shared possession in this relationship. That we belong to God, but somehow He belongs to us. The, the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 is, it says, He says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have 
no other gods before me. Your and have, these are possession words, aren't they? If it's yours, if you have it, it's a, it's a sense, of, a very real sense of possession. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. I belong to you. You shall have no other gods. There's no room for you to have anybody else but me. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant. We've been over covenant stuff here many times. As an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Catch this. To be your God and to be the God of your descendants after you. The intention of God is for him not only to own us as he's chosen us, but also that we would own him. Revelation, somebody get that. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Talks about the intention of all things, the fulfillment of all things. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Catch this. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. So there's a powerful sense of God inviting us to possess him. I am my beloved's and he is mine. A sense of shared position. Now this doesn't mean in any way that we're God's equal, does it? We got, this is where we have to walk carefully. We're not God's equal. God will always be infinitely greater than anything we can not only understand, but even imagine. God is infinite. How long is it going to take you in heaven? Some of you are wigged out about eternity. Oh, it's forever and ever. How long is it going to take you to know everything there is to know about God? He's infinite. We never can. Every moment will be a new moment. We're already behind schedule. We can never catch up with his magnitude. There is no end to it. And so this is God. And we must understand that as God invites us to possess him, he's not shrinking himself to be our pocket Jesus. To get out, I think I need a little Jesus on this. I'm up for a promotion. I'm going to put a little Jesus juice on that. I'm just going to, all my marriage is in trouble. Jesus... Go get her. Go, go, go straighten her out. Jesus Christ does not fit in our pockets. Jesus Christ does not fit in our pockets. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the God of the universe. Nothing changes when we, uh, in that when we enter into his possession. But he has invited us also to possess him. Here's how I think it works. So when my children were small, they were handed to me. Just a little bundle of protoplasm. And kind of the universe was saying, give you your best shot. Good luck, buddy. But I knew that I possessed them. They were my possession. They belonged to me. They knew that I possessed them. But what is also true, especially with our daughter, is that they possessed me. She possessed me. 
There wasn't anything that she would ask for that I wouldn't try and get for her. And she knew it. (laughs) And so here I am, gargantuan in comparison to her. She was two pounds, four ounces when she was born. Struggled all the way down to one pound, 15 ounces before she turned around. Now she's a mama with babies of her own. Yeah, thank you, Lord. But she knew at a very early point that she owned me. It was great. It's even better with the granddaughters. No responsibility whatsoever. (laughs) I'll give you anything you want. You should have more chocolate. Your parents are coming soon. You should have that. You see the mutual possession, though? It doesn't change anything in the relative nature of the size of us, but the possession is mutual because it's by invitation. God has invited us to possess him. I kind of wonder, when water is poured into a glass, does the glass possess the water, or does the water in some way also possess the glass? Anthony, you're going to be thinking about that all week long, you know that? Hmm. (laughs) I just want you to understand that there's a relationship in both directions, and we as... 21st century Americans tend to categorize things so much that we fail to appreciate the dynamic relationship between something like the water and the glass. But it helps us to embrace our relationship with God. I belong to you is the word of the Lord. It's that we belong to God. You belong to God. The ramifications of us belonging to God are really endless, aren't they? I mean, how does that work out? Well, if I belong to God, that means I'm not my own, which is exactly what the Bible says. So that God can do with me whatever he wants, and it's okay. I don't belong to myself anymore. If God wants to make me great, or if God wants to spin me like pocket change and put me in the bubblegum machine for his enjoyment, that's okay because I belong to him, and I trust him to do with me the thing that brings him the greatest glory and pleasure. I belong to God, there is a powerful sense of surrender that has to go with that, right? I belong to you, Lord. And just what I want you to embrace this morning as we move into some response time to God is is just claiming your place in the family. Finding your place at the table of God. Living from that place. Claiming your place in the family. You belong to God. That means he's made a place for you at the table. And it's a a 24-7 relationship. You know, Karen and I are always married. Right now, she's not in the room. She's back there with the middle schoolers wondering how long I'm going to go. (laughs) But we're always married. That never changes. It's It's an obsessive kind of relationship. I am obsessed with her. 
We don't have a relationship where we show up once a week and tell each other how great you are and then split and say, I'll see you next week. It's an ongoing, pervasive relationship. And I believe that's what God is calling us to. He said, take your place at my table. You know, I, I, I know someone who is very close to me, and she once told me that as an adopted child, that the adoption thing isn't as clear-cut and clean as maybe we might. I'm trying to paraphrase her words, but that there's still kind of something unfinished about it. Grateful to someone, some parents who adopted her, of course. But there's still something kind of undone. And I wonder if it's like that in our relationship with God, church. I think it becomes done when we, by faith, step into his presence and say, I want, I'll take the seat you've assigned to me. And I thank you for it. Father, we invite your presence now. And whatever needs to happen next, is, from your point of view, is really what we want. It's all we wanted when we got up this morning. It's for you to do whatever's next. So come, Holy Spirit, we come as your fully adopted sons and daughters, the church, grafted in somehow to the mystery of your chosen people. We take that place, and in the name of Jesus, I pray for a flow of your Holy Spirit in this room to do whatever your Holy Spirit wants to do. We invite you, Lord, to come and to press us into this place of embracing this reality that we fully belong to you, that we're your sons, that we're your daughters. We're not kind of your sons and daughters. We're your chosen people. That we belong to you and that you somehow mysteriously in your power and majesty want to belong to us. What a different world this could be, O oh Lord, if you could enliven the church with this truth. What a different place this would be. If you could just come and take up your place as our Father, the Father who loves us. So we invite you, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit to come and heal our sick, to set our prisoners free, to counsel those who are troubled in their minds who need to be set free from chronic issues in their minds. Come, power of the Holy Spirit. And come, Father, and save those who are ready to come to you as Savior and Lord of their lives. Just come and show them their place at the table and what you've done to make it so. Father, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? I'd love for some of our prayer team to come up on both sides and just be there available if somebody here would like to receive prayer for something in your life. Just come on up to these guys and they'll be here to pray with you. And also, if here at the Vineyard, however you're stirred, if you want to, you can come up. You don't have to be asked or invited. Just if you're stirred in your heart to respond to God in some way, then uh, as long as it doesn't cause trouble for the people around you, just come on up. Just do, I mean, you know, just do what's in your heart to do.